so we'll go ahead and get, uh, I've been reminded that we need to be done promptly at 7.30, so we're going we're gonna to plow our way through the text and spend a little time together this evening. Uh, my name's Chris Harrell, and uh, I told, uh, told some story in the first session, I won't go through it again, about how we got to Jonesboro, but we have been here uh, 20 years this year, is that right? Yeah, this is 2022, isn't it? Yeah, so it's 20 years this year. I mean, it's been so good, it hardly seems like it's been any time at all, right? But um, honored to be here. Uh, so just kind of like a quick hit on our story. Um, I came here to do youth ministry for the Southwest Church, and uh, I did youth ministry stuff, I think, for like six years. And then uh, one day, our oldest son, who's now a sophomore in college, oh, thank you. Oh, you got a sponge. That is really spiritual. Yeah. Almost like washing the feet. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So uh, our oldest son, he's now a sophomore in college. Uh, I can't remember. I guess he would have been about six or seven years old. Uh, I was probably pushing seven. And uh, one day he said, Dad, you spend more time with the teenagers than you do with us. Mm-hmm. And so I, I went to the leadership at Southwest and said, I, this will be my last summer to do youth ministry. i gotta, I, I got to find something else to do. And so I'll, I'll, I'll go find another job or whatever. And they, anyway, they, um, they let me transition into another role. And I kind of served as the administrator there, which meant bad cop. Um, <laughs> Anyway, lots of therapy for that. And, uh, <laughs> and then I start preaching uh, kind of once a month or once a, it was once a quarter, once a month. And then, and then it wound up my last several years there every other year. And, uh, Southwest had been in, been in church planting for, uh, for a while, but planting churches in the Pacific Northwest. And I kept saying, why are we planting churches in the Pacific Northwest when a lot of people that, that we personally know are disconnected and disengaged from churches in Jonesboro? And, and I'm, I'm really bad with time, but probably seven or eight years ago, God put a, just a huge burden on our heart for uh, what if we could start something new that was a, a kind of all the data says new people come to new churches. Like it's just, it's just a really wide on-ramp. And uh, so what if, we could, what if we could start something for people who really struggle with faith, uh, have hard questions, um, and so we, we began to do that, and then in uh, January of 2020, that became uh, Independent Autonomous of Southwest. And so now I lead a place called Compass Church that meets over here in the Church Street Station. Uh, and it's, it's, been, it's been really great. There's been some, some really, really hard moments, but we do that. And so uh, my wife's a school teacher at MacArthur. I'm over here at Compass. Uh, we've got one son in Searcy at Harding University. We have another one that's a junior in high school at JHS. So... So we've been here and had a chance to serve in the community, and uh, a number of you in this room, we've, we've been around over the years, and I confess, we did confessing in the last course, uh, so I got to confess about, maybe you've seen me be a passionate fan and parent of ball games, and forgive me, but I've seen some of you too. We're all in this together, friends. We're in this together. Uh, in all seriousness, I, I do think one of the... Uh, one of the neat things about uh, uh, about relationships here is that you get to serve together. Uh, you know, there's in the, in the big universal church, and so I, I think that's a really beautiful, wonderful thing. So, so I'm honored by that. Uh, I, I've got to know Rodney a little bit, and right after he was done 
just now, I walked up and said, Rodney, man, I had all this stuff. Like, I was going to use all these Greek words in my class tonight. And Rodney doesn't know me super well. He goes, oh, I'm so sorry. And I could tell he was being genuine. I wasn't. I was, I was just lying. And uh, it's like, I'm so sorry. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> so again, confession. So this is really about me confessing. So tonight we're going to talk about John 9. And, and the, the way I'm going to kind of, I'm not going to book chapter and verse this out. I did say this earlier. I'll say it again. Uh, I, I really want, when I talk about, when I, when I want to lead it away, and I want to preach in a way, and I want to practice faith in a way that, that makes sense day in and day out, uh, in the midst of being here this morning and running some errands and checking on some people, I got to go by the hospice house and got to sit with a family and sit with a gentleman that's in the last stages of his life and uh, thought about Martha and Lazarus. And in the last session, talked a lot about, we, we did a, a practice called Lectio Divina. Talked about what stood out to me in that text is that Jesus weeps. I, I'm a, I use the New Living Translation to preach from, and there it says, Jesus weeps, Jesus shouts, Jesus gets angry means to me, Jesus can understand the complexity of sitting at the hospice house and sitting with a family uh, who's about to lose their father and about to lose their spouse. And he gets it. Now, if Jesus doesn't get that, then to me, he's not, worth, he's not a God worth following. If Jesus doesn't understand our suffering, if he doesn't connect with us in our suffering, we don't connect with him in our suffering, I think suffering is often... Feudal. So I'm kind of drawn to the problem of pain. Uh, a lot of people in our church, uh, that's been part of their story, and that's part of what's derailed them in terms of faith, is pain and sorting through that. Um, and so I'm really, really interested not just in an intellectual exercise of faith, but I'm interested in, okay, how, how, do, we, how do we help this make sense Monday through Friday? Which, which I know you are too, and like, that's what we have really tried to push with our boys. Like, okay, how do, we, how do we take what we do, corporate assembly on Sunday or in our small groups? How do you live this out in the hallways of elementary school, middle school, high school? How, how do you practice that? Now, how do you practice that in college? And, and how do you get to the point where even when difficult circumstances occur in your life or in your faith journey, you, you know how to recenter yourself? So, so what I want to do here in our time together this evening is I want us to sort of embed ourselves in the story. I'm going to do this a little differently than I did it this morning. Uh, but I want us to embed ourselves in the story. And then I want us to end by talking about how do we live out of this story. Okay? Try to this. That's kind of the, that's kind of the two primary moves that I'm looking for uh, this evening. Uh, how many of you are, by the way, I did my own slides, which is a disaster. So this is going to be bad. They're not going to be the right scale. Someone's going to go, oh, lame. <laughs> All right, somebody will. I go ahead. That's fine. But how many of you are familiar with the metaverse? Okay, there's a few of us in here that are familiar with the metaverse. I'm not super familiar with it. I'm, I've never been in the metaverse, and I'm, I'm being sincere when I say that. Have, have, has anyone in here like ever ventured into the metaverse and done anything in that space? Okay. All right, let me back up for a minute. All right, so in the last class, I said, all right, we're going to do a spiritual practice. It's called Lectio Divina. How many of you have ever done Lectio Divina before? And like two people in the back are like, 
<laughs> I go, all right, well, here we go. Okay. So the metaverse is basically this 3D world that you that you enter into. Uh, so like there's the Oculus by Facebook and those sort of things. And it's you, you enter into this place and you immerse yourself in this world. And if you read much about this right now, there, there are companies that are going out and they are actually buying up space and storefronts in the metaverse for billions of dollars. Now, that does not really make sense to me. Okay, I'm just old enough that I go, this does not, like, why would you want to buy space for something virtually that doesn't really exist? Why would you want to do this? But it's we're moving as a people to where we want to live, some people want to live, sort of in this 3D world where they can have everything, where they can have everything around them, where they can, uh, where they can kind of see the world in a completely different perspective. And no pun intended, but I think when we think about this text about the man born blind and we begin to kind of think about incarnation, it's an invitation to kind of dump ourselves. I'm sorry, in the age of COVID, and I'm like standing like right up the top of the house. It just hit me that I'm doing that. <laughs> I'm sure you signed a release. <laughs> Chris, I'm I will, He works at the hospital, too. Okay. <laughs> Chris, keep me in mind. Pray for you. All right. Don't report me to you-know-who. Okay. <laughs> we have a friend. That'll get after me. All right. Uh, where was I? Okay. Nonetheless, we, we invest ourselves in the story, and we kind of find ourselves in it. And I think once we enter into the story, we're able to see it. So what I want us to try for just a moment tonight is to think about the story of Man Born Blind. Like, we're not going to read the text. I'm just making some assumption that you're, that you're familiar with the story. We're going to try to dump ourselves into it almost as if like we're jumping into the story ourselves. Okay, so for those who are those who are theater people, maybe like you know like how you mark the stage and you have cues where you go and you stand. I want you to kind of think in those terms. Essentially, what we're going to do in just a moment is we're going to try to we're going to try to think through this story. And again, I'm assuming that and maybe that's a bad assumption. I've already assumed about the metaverse. I was wrong, and now I'm assuming about that. But we're going to assume you you know the gist of the story. And what we're going to try to do is we're going to try to rotate our way around the story, okay? So, for example, if I hold up my phone and I'm just looking at it from this angle, I see a picture of my wife and I, I see a K-8 weather alert, liars. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was, I was really ticked about that last night. <laughs> Find somebody in my church said, you've got a beef with God in the weather, don't you? <laughs> no, my beef is with K-8. And all right, anyway, somebody here works with K-8. Chris at CompassJonesWorld.com. Email me later. All right. But if I stand right here, I kind of see it from a different place. And if I stand over here, I see it from a different place. And so what we want to look at in the story tonight is how do we jump into the story and how do we just kind of look how do we look around it? And where do we find ourselves in the story? Uh, some of you might be movie people. Let's see if I can get this to play. You probably have seen this before at the movie theater. Oh, no, you can't because I'm not on your Wi-Fi here. I'm, lo I'm locked out of Baptist Wi-Fi. All around you. All right, that's what they're going to say. Great. I, mean, I work hard on that illustration. I'm not on, it's, it's really no big deal. Seriously, I don't need it. Okay. I was. <laughs> I, I'm out of Greek, I'm out of Wi-Fi. <laughs> you wait until I get the evaluation. <laughs> All right, John Nunn. Sorry, I'll, 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 I'll slow down and be less plucky. 
John 9, central question. Rabbi, his disciples ask him, why was this man born blind? Was it because of his own sins or his parents' sins? When you jump into this text and you begin to think about this text, you begin to think about this story, we're looking at it from the point of view of his parents. All right. Just for a moment, if you're a parent or a grandparent or you love a kiddo, put on your parenting hat. What, if you've got a son that's been born blind and in your culture they're asking questions such as, Rabbi, was this, why was this man born blind? Was it because of his own sins or his parents' sins? What do you think your daily life is like? Just kind of prime the conversation here with that. What, what is your daily life like? What do you think? Jump out here and tell me something. The parents or the blind man? What is it like for the blind man? <coughs> What's it's hard. Hard. Very hard. Okay. Monotonous. Monotonous. Hopeless. Hopeless. Dark. Whispers. Dark. Whispers. Whispers everywhere. You His world is very small. Mm-hmm. He's only comfortable in one little area. Yeah. <coughs> He's being judged. Totally. Either, you know, as a him or as his parents. All the time. No compassion. No compassion. Priceless shame. Yeah. But you know, his other senses were probably more acute. Right. Mm-hmm. He could probably hear better, smell better. Yeah. We, we had dinner with uh, family last night after uh, after our other church, Don Riggs, Hurricane uh, <laughs> Gymnasium. <laughs> and. Uh, grade school, he's a sixth grade kid, was with us, and he walked in and he said, I said, hey, I like your haircut. And I could never pull off his haircut, but I thought, hey, that's really cool. I said, hey, I like your haircut. And he said to his mom, it's really, my hair is really tight, but people at school talk about me. She said, well, how do you know that? He said, well, I hear them whispering. Mm-hmm. And if you've, if you've ever parented a kid that feels like people are talking about them, feels like the burden of that, it's pretty hard. All right, let's, let's change gears for a minute. What's the perspective of the, what's the perspective, what's life like for the parents who hear people asking questions like this all the time? Guilt. Guilt? What else? They're embarrassed. Frustration? They're embarrassed. Worried. Worried. Hurt. Hurt. I mean, not to jump off on the deep end of it or anything, but if you've ever if you've ever had a kid that's that's done something dumb, <laughs> I mean, not my kids. They would never. That's 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 a joke. That's a, that's a flat out lie. That's worse than a right. You know, you just kind of carry this like, what do people think? What do they think we did wrong? And even and even when people come around and are like, "Oh, it's it's not your fault. We know you did your best. We know you're, you know, you're like, no, I that's my kid. Like I, you know, you just you feel you feel the weight of that. No one is a winner in the story the way that it starts, right? Mom and dad are in a bad place. Uh, the son, the man born blind, is in a bad place, and they are all completely entrenched in their views. They've got, they've got no place to go, okay? Let's jump down. Let's look at verses 3 through 7. Jesus responds, 
And again, this is New Living Translation. You might be reading something different. It was not because of his sins or his parents' sins. This happened so the power of God could be seen in him. We must quickly carry out the tasks assigned to us by the one who sent us. The night is coming and no one can work, but while I am here, I am the light of the world. And then you know the story. He spits on the ground. He makes, he makes mud. And he tells him, go wash yourself in the pool of Siloam. Siloam means sent. So the man went and washed and came back seeing. And it's also kind of interesting here in this story, too, because Siloam is really uh, not one of the nearby places, right? Like, I mean, like he's like the pool of Siloam. Like, he's got to get out of his own little area, and he's got to, he's got to travel to make it. He's got to travel, and he's got to make it to the pool. So this situation moves from, this story moves from something that's very static and very entrenched to suddenly it moves to something that's very dynamic. Okay, so he comes back. Tell me what happens next. He comes back. What's, what's occurred? He can see. Yeah, the punchline, right? Man born blind. Now I can see. Headline. Tweet that, right? It's out there. Now I can see. And then the next phase, again, I'm assuming we all kind of know the story here, the, the general guideline story. The next phase is, what, then what occurs? What's, what's the next big thing that happens? The Pharisees get Yeah, the religious leaders, the Pharisees look around and go, wait just a minute, you, you're the guy that we've been kind of kicking. You're, you're the guy that has been, has been a late night conversation about. Well, do you remember so-and-so? Do you remember so-and-so's parents? Like, what do you think it was? What do you think it was that occurred, made their son turn out the way that he did? And now all of a sudden their world's turned upside down. His world is turned upside down. And so they begin to just kind of engage this, this difficult uh, conversation. All right. Now, how do the parents get right back in the story? They go ask him. They go for him. Yeah. They go and they find mom and dad and they go, all right, tell us the story. And do you remember what occurs next? Once they, once they start basically interrogating the parents... Do the parents saddle up by their son, or do the parents distance themselves from their son? Yeah, they go, hey, hey, he can see now. Why don't you ask him? Well, why do you think they did that? They're scared. They're they, scared? They don't know what happened. Okay, they don't know what happened. All right, let, I mean, we like kind of know like some of the religious answers, but like, I mean, like think how long in your parent heart here for a minute. Why do, why do you think they're doing all this? Why do you think they are scared? Why, why do you think they're struggling with this? And I don't know the exact answer to that, of course. I wasn't there. But why do you think they're struggling with this? I think they've already felt shame for so many years of not having a child. And maybe they don't want to just have to be a wrong child. Mm-hmm. Now, I, I think I'm jumping a little ahead in the story. But you know one of the things that's interesting to me about this story is this guy's never been able to see, as far as we know. And then when he can see, where does he see his, like, where's one of the places, primary places in the story where he sees his parents? Where, be where, in the temple. Do what? It would be in the temple. Would it would be in the temple. And what are, what, but his parents are in the middle of this religious tribunal, right? right. And so can you, like, think about that for just a second. You've, ne- you've not been able to see your entire life. You can now see, and now you are engaging with your parents, seeing them, and they're, having, they're separating themselves from you because of this religious thing that's going on. And I, I'm not being silly when I say this. I mean, this, this is deep trauma. He's probably a brain overload because his mind's trying to put voices together with people 
he had been hearing all of his life. That's exactly right. This guy is in complete sensory overload. Complete sensory overload. And so when you begin to like really like jump off into the deep end of the story and you begin to just sort of like look at it in, in a metaverse type way where it's like static and you can walk around and you can see the characters. And you can see the sun coming back and all of a sudden he's going, wait, wait. And people begin to look at him and go, wait just a minute, he's not acting right. He's acting different. And then there's kind of this murmur and there's this roar in the crowd and the religious leaders come over and mom and dad come over and Jesus is there and the disciples are there. So if we marked the, if we marked the stage and we were walking around the stage, at this moment while there's this sort of interrogation that's going on, what do you think the disciples are thinking and processing? Again, I don't know the answer to this. I'm just asking us to probe the, probe the story and think through it. What do you think the disciples are thinking? Yeah. <laughs> Jesus, <laughs> why do you keep doing these things? Right? And they're going, why do we keep hanging out with this guy? We could go home, and it wouldn't be near as crazy as this. This guy invokes crazy everywhere he goes. Like growing up, I had a, I had a, a great uncle that would show up at, at holiday events drunk. And his name was only mentioned like when it like like incoming. <laughs> I vividly remember as a kid, Christmas Eve, which is our big Christmas time. He pulls up in the drive, and I hear murmur, murmur, murmur. He's coming, and they ush all of us kids. You know, ush like we you know we're a good Christian family. Come on, let's go <laughs> to the back of the house to Grandma's bedroom, and we sit in there, and they close the door while they're trying to figure out what to do with him. I'll be forty-five this year. I still remember that. I can I can see it. I can smell it. I can feel it. I just got stuck in my nana's bedroom. And it really wasn't that big of a deal, but I remember it. It's got that going on. What's Jesus? What do you think Jesus is thinking in this moment? I like to think he has a smirk on his face. Yeah. <laughs> I do too. Yeah, moderately entertained. I like that. Yeah. He's considering it. He's processing. He's going, let's see where this is going to go. How's this going to turn out? He said, I'm going to keep this up. I'm going to line up on the cross. Yeah. yeah. Boys, if I keep this up, they're going to kill me. <laughs> Wink. Oh, that's, that's bad. Yeah. I mean, he's got all those sort of things that are going. There's all this stuff that's going on around the man. And every single time he says, they're asking questions, and every single time he says, I have no idea how this happened. Here, here's the difference, I think, in, 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 in religious thinking and incarnation. Religious thinking is a whole lot of talk and not much action. Jesus, on the other hand, he says something and he does it. He follows through with it. He, he's, he's embedded with people. So Jesus says in the midst of this, I am, or not in the midst of this, Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. He feeds the 5,000. He says, I am the bread of life. He, he comes out and he speaks to who he is and then he raises somebody or he feeds somebody. And in this text he says, hey, I am the light of the world. 
right in the middle of healing a blind man. A man that goes from darkness to light. All right? So Jesus was word made flesh. Jesus takes this and he brings it down kind of right here in the midst of us. I think I've got some other slides in here I was going to bounce through. All right. You know, you know. All right. So here's a question. Again, that should be there, different font, all that. We have cool young people at our church that do that sometimes for me. All right. Why is it such good news, and why is it so powerful in this story and in our lives when Jesus kind of drops right in the middle of everything and moves us from blindness to being able to see, moves us from, uh, uh, from being fearful to being at peace, when he moves us from being people who are ashamed of our story to people who can, who can stand in confidence because of our story. What is the power? Why is this so good? Could it be evidence of the miraculous? Mm. Yeah. It's the evidence of the miraculous. Like, he couldn't, man more blind, he couldn't pull this off on his own. Like, how many times do you think that growing up, his parents said, well, what if we tried this? What if we tried this? Uh, our, our son was born with food allergies. We, we didn't know that until the first time he took a, uh, until he took a, 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 a formula, like formula bottle, and he swelled up. All of a sudden, he swells up. We don't know what to do. Thankfully, uh, one of the people that led our search team that hired us was a physician, and we called. He's like, bring him to my office. So he treats him, and then we realize with him, like a lifetime of food allergies. So our kid... Did all kinds of stuff dealing with food allergies, and now he's 19 years old, almost 20, and he carries an EpiPen around him, and he has for years. But along the way, like we tried all kinds of stuff, like maybe this will get him out of the food allergies. Maybe this will be the thing. Maybe this will be the turn that gets him out of that. Didn't work. But if we could have just willed it to make it happen, it would have happened. Why else is incarnation so powerful and so good? Gives us hope. Yeah. Gives us gives us some place to go, right? It gives us a trajectory on our life. Hope is a good thing. What else would you say? People see you believe, and they're like, you're crazy, that's happening, and then it just changes. Yeah. I once was, now I am, yeah. Exactly right. I think the incarnation is powerful and good, especially because it, it changes our story. And over and over again in this story, Jesus takes, takes a man... As uh, Rodney has said, he takes a man with no value whatsoever and he just kind of turns his story into a walking example of what he came to do. And I think about your life, uh, what I know of some of you in this room, and I think about my life, and over and over and over and over and over again, I think that's the move that Jesus makes. 
Jesus says, well, let, let me just adjust this. Let me just kind of drop a little incarnation right here, and let's see where this gets us. And then once it gets us to here, like, now I'm going to work on this in your life, and he moves us in these different ways, in these different times, in these different moments. Okay, uh, let me move on here. All right. I think, and so I'm going I'm to kind of spend a little time here with this. This is sort of where I want to just sort of camp out for, for the balance of our time. I think what we see in this text is that the man born blind has a narrative about his life that is greatly deficient. Here's what I mean by that. He wakes up every single day saying, there's something wrong with me. His parents get up every single day and say, there's something wrong with him, and we're not sure if it was him or it was us. The religious leaders walk around him in this text saying there's something wrong with them. The disciples ask a question. What is wrong? Jesus is the only one that can answer it. So we all, this the man born blind and all the characters in the story, they, they all live from a narrative. Okay? We, we are a storying people. I think Rodney's kind of mentioned something similar to that this morning. We're all a people who live by story. Like, I grew up in a world where our story was, hey, we're, we're going we're gonna to follow Jesus. And, and what that meant in my context in Nashville, Tennessee, was we're going to get up and we're going to go to church. Specifically, we're going to go to early service <laughs> at 8 a.m. because that's when the most righteous families go. <laughs> that's what I was told growing up. I'm not saying that is true. We only have one service at our church, so I don't have to judge anybody. <laughs> We're going to get up, we're going to go to church, we're going to eat Sunday lunch with family, we're going to spend time with family, we're going to go to Sunday night church, and when they take the Amazing Grace Bible class hour, and we will participate in that, and we will go to Wednesday night church, and you will go to a Christian school, and you're going to learn a lot of good things. Okay? I, and I'm being, and, and, and I'm not <clears throat> knocking that at all. I, I do remember late elementary, early junior high, I got in the car one Sunday morning, there was a specific pickup spot in the parking lot that we were to assemble at. We were to get in the car, go to lunch. I got in the car, I think I was running a little late, and uh, Dad said, like, well, you're, you're late. I said, I've been thinking about it. I said, why am I, or why are we Church of Christ in the parishes with some friends of ours? Why are they Nazarenes? My dad said, well, because, well, that's who we are. <laughs> now, he didn't say it just like that. That's, that's how I felt it. That's how I remember it. And I said, well, tell me that story again. And the story was that uh, my mom's family, they were not believers, and, uh, and I'm terrible with time and dates, but sometime in her uh, early, early childhood, some man was going door to door, knocking on doors, sharing the gospel with people, and he was from the churches of Christ. My grandfather, who was not a believer, sat down and heard it. He was a very rational man, and it was presented in a very rational way. And he said, that's it. I'm signing up for that. <laughs> and so they, they became Church of Christ people. And so I, I in all seriousness, I asked by that. I literally remember this spot in the parking lot, in the car, the sway, you know, like the, the fabric in the car is an AMC, like Eagle, station wagon type thing. And I said, uh, 
So if it had been a Baptist guy that had come to Granddad Horace's house and knocked on the door, would we be Baptist? Because I don't know, we're going to lunch. It's <laughs> <laughs> a great answer. True story. That is not even a preacher story. That's really true. So there was a narrative. Right, there was a narrative. Like, so like if you if you grown up with a religious narrative, that's that's what's powered your life. If if you've grown up in a family that struggled with faith or said this doesn't add up or and again, I'm not. I am not being uh, cynical uh, or sardonic in any way. If you grew up with a family that did church at Christmas and Easter, that was your narrative. If you grew up with a narrative that said, "I really, really want to be for God, but I just don't think that He's very nice, or I think that He's really ugly, or I think that He's mean, or I think that He's vindictive," or Rodney mentioned the word Christology earlier. There's all these atonement theories, and we're not going to get into that, but there's all these atonement theories, and you go, well, why would, why would God need to be so mean? Or why would, God, why would God feel like he needed to ransom me? Or I mean, we could go through all kinds of things. Those determine the way that you think. So there's been a lot of ink that's been spilt in years in theological studies about the narratives that power us. And I think that this is connected to the incarnation in that who we understand Jesus to be and who we understand ourselves to be powers who we are. So here's a narrative. This is a fault. There's this is a narrative about life. You are an isolated self in competition with others. False narrative. Here's a true narrative. You are an interconnected soul in solidarity with others. All right. So how do you have to raise your hand? You have to respond to this. We're going to get to the. We're going to get to forming our own narratives. That's where we're headed with this. We're going to have some conversation about what are false narratives out of this text. And what are true narratives? And then we're going we're gonna to have some conversation about what are false narratives that we believe and what are true narratives that we believe in terms of incarnation. That's where we're going, all right? Just to kind of give you a little bit of the roadmap here in the, in the next few minutes we have together. How often do we go through life thinking that we're just in competition with somebody else? Like I've, like I've just got to do better. I mentioned in the, in the, in the first class, uh, we did a prayer thing last year with a bunch of churches in Jonesboro, and we would go and we'd meet with pastors all over the city. And the first thing we'd have to say to pastors in the city was, hey, we we'll to be real straight with you. We don't want your people, and we're not, we're not after your people, and we're not after your money. But until we could convince, not every pastor, but until we could convince several pastors in town, hey, we're not after your people, and we're not after your money, we just want to pray. Then they were okay with it. Because we live in a siloed world, right? Like, hey, don't, don't steal my sheep. Don't take my flock. Don't do this. Don't do that. All right, so this is, a, this is an example of a false narrative and a true narrative. All right? Here's another narrative. A false narrative says, I must make everything happen. I must be in control. I must be perfect. I must achieve to attain significance. All right, let's raise our hands because this, this is a layup. Like, how many of us have ever believed this? All right, how many of us are in recovery for believing this? All right. All right, true narrative. You don't have to make it happen. You are not in control, and perfection is a deadly illusion. Your task is to restfully and joyously serve in the midst of the Trinity in action. Now, I confess, I, some days I really want to believe this. Some days I do not believe this at all. I live, I live up here. I did a series on slowing down, and I started most weeks by saying, Hi, my name is Chris, and I'm addicted to hurry. Because I am. I like to go fast. I like to do things. Okay? 
Here's, an, here's another one. Oh, and I think this one just kind of hits with where we are right now as a people. False narrative. I am always in a situation of peril. The world is a scary place. Anxiety and worry and fear are my only sources of help. Here's the true narrative. I live in the strong and unshakable kingdom of God. The kingdom is never in trouble. I keep the Lord always before me because he is with me. I will never be afraid. Here's my big idea. We're all, we're all in this, right in the thick of this story. Because all of us function from false narratives at different times. And I think that one of the best ways that we experience the incarnation is to unseat the false narratives in our life and lean into a true narrative of who Jesus is and how Jesus interacts with us. You tracking with me at all? Okay. Here, here's kind of the, the final one, the power narrative. I am the one in whom Christ dwells and delights, and I live in the strong and unshakable kingdom of God. Now, I'm going to butcher their name, so I'm not even going to try to say it, but there's a, a person that, that I read. I can't remember if it's, uh, I can't remember if this is a James, and Rodney's in the back of the room, maybe he'll know who it is. I can't remember if this is a James Bryan Smith or a James K.A. Smith thing. I think it's a James Bryan Smith. He's nodding. I said Smith, so either way, he wins. <laughs> he should have said, it's one of the Smiths. <laughs> but, but their point is, their thing is, is that we are a storytelling people. We are a narrative people. So every single day, you get up and you say, okay, today I am the one in whom Christ dwells and delights, and I live in the strong and unshakable kingdom of God. And you allow that narrative to power you through the day. It's sort of like... Uh, those uh, who, who pray the daily offices, or who pray the daily office, or who pray a liturgy, they come back to that over and over and over and over again. Does anybody know what that is? All right, a few people are not yet. You come back to that over and over and over again so that you're connected to who God is. You're connected to the voice of God in your life. I was with a guy a few weeks ago, and he was telling me a story. He goes, man, he goes, I noticed I'm really, really good at praying in the morning, and by the middle of the day, I just kind of want to mow everybody over. <laughs> I said, I'm proud you're at our church. <laughs> proud, proud you're here. We're in solidarity. But he said, when I, when I pray the offices, he said, I find it sort of like when the morning energy is kind of run out by the midday, and I begin a midday prayer, I meet God there again. And my story is rewritten. And then in the evening, I end the day by spending time in prayer again. Uh, there's, a, there's a great, if you're ever interested in that, I, I'm a fan of it's uh, The Divine Hours by Phyllis Tickle. I think that's the name of that. I think that's the name of that book. Um, I kind of got a daily prayer guide there. Okay. So there's a story at work in this, in this story, and it's the story of the narrative that, that goes through their life. Okay. So the, the big story, yeah. Did I, did I mess that up? Okay. All right. Let's think about this story for a minute. What are the narratives? We've already kind of talked about the shame. We've kind of talked about uh, fear. We've talked about those sort of things. What are some of the other narrative threads that are running through this story? Both, both good narratives and bad narratives. What are some of the other things that are running through this text? Love. Love. How so? The parents love the sons. 
them. Okay. Um, Jesus loves them all. Yeah. What else is running in the text? Do what? Blame. Okay. Blame. Think also that you don't need to be a victim of your society. Okay. You don't need to be a victim of your society. All right. What are some other narratives that are running in the text? There's faith because the blind man had to have enough faith to like go to Siloam, right? Yeah. Like. He had to have like, okay, maybe, maybe now I can like, I'm going to lean into this. I'm going to walk into this. Right? But he was open to doing it. Yeah, he was open to it. He had this openness in his heart. He wanted something different. Control. Okay, how so? Um, I'm thinking of the Pharisees, them being unsure of how this all happened. Um, they want to be able to control the situation, know more than their audience, and they're just as confused. Mm. feel like he can't catch a break even when he can see they're like ask him and he's like i already told you the story i don't yeah. know what else to say and they're like tell us again <laughs> yeah and then he, at like, one point where they say like well like don't you want to follow him too or like yeah. don't you want to jump on board like wouldn't you like to know more about this and then they threw him out yeah <laughs> yeah well after all it did happen on the sabbath and that's just a no-no yeah. Yeah. You just can't do things like that. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. He should have known better. Yeah. Right. He did. He did know better, but yeah. he didn't get it. Jesus was kind of a rebel. Yeah. I think about how they were all missing out on the joy yeah. of what had happened mm-hmm. by debating why it happened, how it happened, and who's got the power that made it happen. They just all miss the joy of the whole event. Mm. Yeah. Great observation. I can't help but think that down the road it made them think, or, I mean, nobody can argue with your story. And made them think, the people that, as it dismissed, maybe the next day or maybe a year. Mm-hmm. You no, know, it, it, uh, it disrupted their community. You know, you know they're, they're here in this religious community. They've got this great togetherness uh, together. It said down there in verse 22, his parents said this is because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders who had announced that anyone saying Jesus was the Messiah would be expelled from the synagogue. And that's why they said he's old enough. Mm-hmm. Kind of like, hey, like, you can like, take him out, but don't take us out. Mm-hmm. And it was disruptive. Okay. I'm trying to I'm trying to be mindful of the time back there. <laughs> trying to be mindful of the time. What are the, what are the, when, you, when the, all the dust settles in this story, what are the, what are the true narratives? What are the things about this text? What does this text tell us about God? What does this text tell us about Jesus? What are, what are the things that are truth in this text? We'll start listing those.
control. when he was rejected by the religious leaders, Jesus sought it out again to comfort and further help his understanding. Well, Jesus wasn't worried about all the rules and the regulations of the religion. He was showing love. You know, sometimes we don't really know what to do with that. I mean, Jesus just disrupts our paradigms. I mean, like, how do we do with that? How does it make sense? It doesn't add up. The math doesn't make sense. Relationally, that doesn't make sense. How does he do that? Okay. What else would you say is true about this story? Choose light or choose darkness. Yeah. Choose light or darkness. Jesus moves us from being blind to seeing. It's kind of the low-hanging fruit of the story. I stole that one. <laughs> I mean, he the totally last changes. You said about disrupting stuff. He totally changes the rules because the last verse says, "If if you were the Pharisees were asking him, and he said, if you were blind, you would have no sin. But mm. since you say we see, your sin remains." Mm. Well, because the truth is, not everybody gets a I mean, they had the evidence. They had it all. And they still didn't get it. <coughs> yeah. Our stories matter. Yeah. Our stories matter. Yeah. It's, it's not about religion. Okay. What up? Any other truths from this text? That Jesus knew the rules, but he went ahead with compassion for the man to perform the miracle. Okay. He gave that man a new status, right? <clears throat> he does not abandon people. It's almost like the more the more he sees, the less they see. That's right. They become more of a grist in the in the sight. Yeah, that's exactly right. They're scared. They're just digging in. They're just digging in. 
kids do that. Yeah, not just kids, right? <laughs> yeah. Let's be honest. Those people do it. Right? We get it. All right, here, here's, here's the last question. A lot of truth up here. A lot of truth. Let, let's kind of bring this to our context. Let's bring this to our city. Let's bring this to our people. What does it look like for us to live as incarnational people? As Ronnie just said, you know, to incarnate the light to the world. What would it look like practically for us to do some of these things, for us to practice some of these things, for us to incarnate some of these things in our community? What would that look like? We go in saying, we, we, we start with what do we have in common rather than what do we have as differences, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. What else would it look like? We'd be more compassionate. Right. Be more compassionate. We would see people. Skepticism towards things we don't understand. Yeah, I think it, I think it's uh, I think it's pretty easy sometimes to devalue someone else's experience with God. If it's not our experience, or doesn't come out of our tradition, or doesn't come out of our story, we go, ah, it's a little. Uh, I don't know so much about that. That's not how we do it. Yeah, that's not how we do it. Right. We had the idea that everyone matters. So we, we hear a lot of the others, a lot of that going the other way, but if you just said everyone matters, that kind of, because to Jesus, the blind man mattered. Yeah. He was the last and the least in that society, but he mattered. And he was cursed, right? But yeah, he mattered. Years ago, as a youth minister, we used to take kids out to Colorado, and we would go backpack for three days, and we'd spend three days in downtown Denver. We got like the largest street homeless population in the United States, and they call them uh, a lot of them are street kids. They're not kids, but they're adults that function with the mentality of kids. And so I was partnered up with the ministry there. And so you spend six days or seven days with them, and it's pretty miserable. You're backpacking, and then you're and then like you're all you're not really living on the street, but they didn't let you shower or do anything. They were trying to get you to have this like, hey, you're homeless experience. It, it worked. Um, but one of the biggest takeaways from that was uh, anytime you encounter somebody that's that's asking for money, it's rather than just completely blowing them off, it's to treat them with dignity. Mm -hmm. So we would learn year after year if we'd go there, you could walk by somebody and say, I don't I don't have anything for you today, but you would make sure you look at them. Mm -hmm. I don't have anything I don't have anything for you today. Rather than get away from me or no, or you just kind of blow them off. And, it's remarkable what a difference that makes when you see somebody that's asking for money and say, I, don't, I, don't, I just don't have anything today or I'm not able to help you today. But you look at them and you treat them with dignity. And so when we see people with dignity, that matters. What, what else out of this would be, would be true and would be a practice for us in terms of living as people of incarnation? Living in surrender rather than trying to control. Yeah, surrender. 
surrendering, surrender over control. Is this easy to do? No, I mean, this, I mean, this this kind of works against the. I mean, look at the fall, right? Like, gimme, gimme, gimme. I want what I want. This works against our human nature. But this is possible because of the incarnation. This is possible because of Jesus come near. This is this is possible because Jesus is the light of the world and illuminates our lives and how we function. I, I would say to this that I think we already talked about this that everyone's story matters. I, uh, yeah, we're recording this, so I won't tell the story. Um, let me say it this way. You will encounter people, especially people, that carry some sort of a wound because of the church. Yes. Which, I said this in the first session I, this morning, I believe there are tens of tens of tens of thousands of people in Northeast Arkansas that carry those wounds. I have more to say about that. Sometimes we're not recording on Sunday. Um, but sometimes people who have wounds, when they try, when they, when they venture back to faith or they try to give faith a chance one more time, anytime something's out of place or seems disruptive to them, they, they, they have the possibility of lashing out at that. And I think it's really easy if you're a person like me that's grown up in the church and been in the church you just say, well, that's just the way we do it, and you don't really hear someone out. Sometimes their, sometimes their frustration is not with how things have been done, but it's really their attempt to say, I need you to listen to me. I need to be heard. So I would just say, just in general, when someone lashes out about something or gets upset about something, you need to listen for the story that's underneath the story. You need to listen for what's really going on. And try to be so gracious. Hey, listen, and that is not always easy to do. I struggle with that. So. Uh, I love this one. We'll end with this. <clears throat> Compassion overrules. One of the things that uh, one of the things that we talk about a lot in our context is we're going to choose we're going to choose generosity and grace every single time. When there when there's a choice, we're always going to choose generosity and we're always going to choose grace. We'd rather be over generous and over gracious than undercut that. Because we trust in the goodness of God, so like he's got the he's got the cattle on a thousand hills. If we're not going to outgive him, so we'd rather be over gracious, we'd rather be over generous and deal with it and lose our shirt if that's what it takes, than to cut somebody short. All right, I'm going to pray for us. I appreciate you. I, I kind of I took a completely different route with this than I was probably supposed to take, but but here's here's what I really I, I really believe, and I think when you start my my. My passion in ministry is for people who struggle with faith. That's really, like nothing's better than me to sit down with someone who says, I think I hate God. Tell me more. I think I hate the church. Tell me why. And I, got, I, I, love, I love that. That's, that, is, that is the calling of my life, okay? And I've found time and time and time again that is often born out of a false narrative rather than a true narrative. And that's why I wanted to bring that up today is just to try to get us to think in terms of narratives as we, as we live incarnationally uh, in our city. So let me pray for us and we'll wrap up.
Father, we give you thanks that you have never, ever, ever once given up on us. Father, we give you thanks that you have never, ever once given up on a son or, or daughter or grandson or granddaughter or niece or nephew or friend of ours or neighbor or co-worker classmate that we love that other people whisper about other people talk about feels like they're stuck feels like they have no place to go Father that you are a God who pursues and who loves Lord you are one who loves to bring sight to the blind and we confess our blindness and we're grateful for weekends like this where we can come and be together and through the process of worship and spending time in your word and sharing meals together that uh, you peel back the layers so that we can really see things as they truly are. And I pray over my friends and brothers and sisters here at First Baptist, other churches in my church, Lord, that, uh, that you would use us as your people in this city to see things as they really are. And, uh, and that we would be like the one who points out and says, look, behold, the one who comes to take away the sins of the world. Give us the eyes to see. And Lord, may the presence and peace of Jesus rule and reign in our lives. Father, be at work in our hearts tonight. Give us a good night of rest. Be with, be with those who will gather here tomorrow morning to worship and God, would you speak through Rodney and through Bruce and thank you for their ministries and their hearts for you and how they both have just made such a difference in this city over the years, speaking in your name. Those who will gather other churches in the city, bless them as well. We love you and we want to be yours. It's in Jesus that we pray.